0: Welcome to Objection to the Rule, your Sunday afternoon news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. We are recording this episode on Saturday, April 22nd, and you will be hearing it for the first time on Sunday, April 23rd, 2023. My name is Reese, and I'm here today with my co-host, Jasmine. How are you doing?
1: I'm, you know, one day at a time. It's a beautiful day out here in, in Brooklyn, so grateful for that. How are you?
0: I'm doing pretty good. The birds is chirping, the weather's nice, so right now, we're not going to complain about nothing.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Good vibes only.
0: Right? Good vibes only, definitely. And uh, today is Earth Day, right? Happy Earth Day, everyone. Oh, yeah. I I I
1: always get it wrong, but yeah, I can see the Google Doodle is Earth stuff, so...
0: All we right. love you, so, Earth. I know. Thank you for always doing what you do for us, <laughs> even though we treat you bad sometimes. We love you, Mother Earth. All right. So on the docu for this week's episode, our local news segment will, about, will be about NYC libraries facing budget cuts. Our national news story is about the several senseless shootings that have been rattling the U.S. as of lately. Our world news story is about the fighting and the conflict that's going on in Sudan right now. And our good news story is about some wheelchair-accessible beaches in Greece. So we'll go ahead and kick off today's episode with the local news segment. Go for it, Jasmine.
1: Okay, so this is, um, for me, a a personal story and very upsetting. Uh, This comes from The Gothamist. It was written by Michelle Bocanegra and Brittany Kriegstein. The title of the article is NYC Libraries Could Cut Weekend Service If Mayor Adams Budget Cuts Go Through. A fresh round of budget cuts from Mayor Eric Adams could bring an end to six-day service at the New York Public Library and its counterparts in Queens and Brooklyn, library leaders are warning. Scores of patrons and families who have come to rely on libraries being open on Saturday or Sunday may be shut out according to a letter sent to staff by NYPL President Anthony Marks and obtained by Gothamist. He warned that the new round of cuts could leave the system with a $23 million deficit. This would result in the elimination of Sunday service at all eight current locations, the reduction of hours, and moving to a five-day service schedule at a majority of locations, Marks wrote in a letter adding that vacant positions would be eliminated and people who leave of their own volition would not be replaced. The library system would also slash its collections budgets and hold off on certain repairs at facilities, in addition to delaying reopening for recently renovated locations, resulting in fewer available programs, Marx wrote. All of this is of course truly awful to even contemplate and we still hope and will do all we can to avoid these cuts, Marks wrote. Marx said that layoffs were not currently part of the plan but he added that if the proposed cuts became a reality, we will work to ensure that staff are not stretched beyond limits and that we can continue to deliver the best service we can to our communities under the circumstances officials at the brooklyn public library and the queen's public library confirmed they would also be facing the prospect of cutting weekend service if the cuts go through the queen's public library system stands to lose 15 million dollars under the proposed cuts sunday service would also end at locations that offer it the, the library's central branch in jamaica and the flushing and kew gardens hills branches Adams' office said it was working with libraries to help them meet the needs of patrons. This administration has made critical investments in the city's three library systems and recognizes the vital role they play in our communities, said mayoral spokesperson Jonah Allen. We have asked agencies to achieve savings in response to fiscal and economic conditions, including a a projected $4.3 billion in asylum seeker costs, slowing tax revenue and potential cuts and cost shifts from the state. At Maycom's Bridge Library in Harlem on Friday, a small colorful room was filled with the sounds of toddlers playing. They had just finished story time, which the library hosts several days a week as part of its programming for kids and families. As the tots milled about, parents and guardians in the room asked what the cuts would mean for their families. It would be a loss for sure, said Harlem mom Elizabeth Stanley, whose daughter Sylvie was in the mix with the other kids. Stanley said libraries were a lifesaver for people constrained to small apartments or those who lack daycare as an option. Maglisa Wilson, another visitor at the Harlem Library, said she cares for a young boy who is autistic and that the cozy, safe space at the library has helped him adapt to being around other kids. She was concerned that the cuts would hit low-income parents especially hard. Um, so that's the recap of what's, you know, what libraries in New York City are facing if these budget cuts go through. Um, and just as an aside, if you are concerned about this and you want to help make your voice heard, you can go to www.bklynlibrary.org forward slash standup forward slash contact. So that's all no spaces. Uh, and that's the Brooklyn Library's page to speak out against these cuts. There's also www.nypl.org forward slash speak out also no spaces. Uh, that's another option to um, electronically register your support for your libraries in the city uh, and also reach out to your city council people because they're the ones who basically hold the purse strings and can um, try to stop this budget from going through so yeah sad prospect if you know these services get cut
0: yeah that's awful it's just like, these are the things that really make a community, you know, the library, the playground, um, the places where people gather to, to have a safe space to be with their kids. Also, like, you know, the summers in New York are so tough with the heat and having things to do. It's not always the best thing to take your kid outside. Um, and then you have people who don't have internet service. I remember when I first moved to New York, I went to the library so many times to get on my feet to use the computer to apply for jobs when I was just trying to, yeah, when I was just trying to get myself established, like that became, you know, one of my practices of just going in there and kind of just posting up for a little while, at least for that good hour, two hours, I could use the computer. Um, And then when I was in grad school, you know, I always didn't have uh, to go down to the one at my school. I could go to the local library on the weekends if I need to get some work done. When my roommates were in the department, the apartment and probably making noise or doing whatever they do on the weekend. So the libraries are a pinnacle um, point for people in the community. And I am saddened by this because it's already, I remember after the pandemic, my favorite library never opened back up before I left New York. It was the, um, the poetry library, the one that's down in battery park, man, I spent so many weekends down there
1: um well, i'm sorry to say i never went to that one.
0: Uh, if you get a chance please do it's beautiful they have a very uh specific schedule so it made it a little difficult for me to go it's like during the week it wouldn't be open but i spent many saturdays down there all day in that library doing my work it's beautiful it's a library of all poetry books um And it's really special. It's in Battery Park. It's right there by the water. Like that's one of my favorite places in New York. And it never opened up again after the pandemic before I left. So, um, yeah, this is horrible. I I hope that people will speak out about this. This is a huge thing. You know, people don't realize that these type of cuts really hurt people on the ground. While you may not frequent a library, if that's not your regular jam, especially for kids, for community members that's trying to build programming and things like that. I've been to some wonderful events at libraries all over New York. So, I really just hope that that they can fight this and that something will change.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Like support your local library, man, cuz it's like you're saying it is a lifeline for so many things and it's unfortunate because The libraries do provide that and it's in a way it's like unfair that they do become a space where a lot of other issues in society that should be fixed by like the broader government are kind of, you know, ignored. And then the library becomes a place where you're trying to bridge that gap, which does put a lot of unfair pressure on the staff and the resources there. Yeah. However, it's like if you pour resources into it and you give them what they need, like it's less of a strain, you know, and and it is like a place where the one I tend to go to if I do go to one is the big main um, Grand Army Plaza one. Like I would do a lot of work there. And it's also, you know, it's brought up often that libraries, public libraries are one of the only or if not the only place where you can go sit. And you don't have to buy anything. And the fact that so many places, yeah, like so many places, like just if you need to use the bathroom, if you just need a moment, if you need to sit and be cool or be warm for a little bit, you need a rest. Really think about how many places in public can you do that where you're not like a paying customer. You can't think of anything. That's true. You know, so I, you know, I just, and it makes me so upset when you see all the money that goes into, well, you know, my favorite thing to complain about is like money to policing and bloated police budgets and these robot dogs and shit. But then when it comes to something like this, that's actually supporting families, that's helping people who are low income, like you're saying, When I used to work at a public library, that was huge. People coming in, getting help, looking for work, learning how to use a computer, be familiar with how to use a computer because everyone isn't, you know, and it was a low-pressure, accessible resource that everybody had. And what happens when you shut that down? Where are those people going to go? You know, it's like I'd rather see teenagers and young children And, you know, people that might be struggling with whatever issue, I'd rather they be in the library than they just out wandering in the street, you know? Because then once they're out on the street, it's a problem and the police are going to, like, bust your head in, you know? It's like, why can't that person be at some type of a program, like, where they're learning something or, like, they can look up things on their own if they feel like it?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a community building spot, too. Just the programming is important, you know, as a person who used to organize events. Like, the number of events I've been to at New York Public Libraries has been awesome, man. I've seen some really great talent, and it's a place for a public forum. Even if you are just, like, community building with a group of other, you know, community builders, it's a space where you know you can go and be safe and get resources if you need them. So, um, yeah, this is an important issue. Definitely. People of New York, people of Brooklyn, you know, do what you need to do to save the libraries, because we don't want to lose such an important element of our culture. Things like this, this is how it becomes like a distant memory. Um, and and kids growing up today, they are not even familiar with this type of uh, culture of Using this public space um, for self empowerment and self improvement. So,
1: right, yeah. I grew up, I was a public library kid. That was the thing my mother would take me, you know, and I would read and just be familiar with that space. And it's so true that there's tons of kids already who they're like, library, what? Like, they just don't, like, they may or may not have one within their school. it's not part of the routine in the week to be taken there. So we really want to keep that alive because it's definitely one of those things like you don't know what you're missing until you don't have it anymore. And the way these right-wing zealots are trying to crack down and and censor what people can see and read, you don't want to let that go. So please reach out, like go to those links that I mentioned. Again, that's www.nypl.org forward slash speak out www.bklynlibrary.org forward slash stand up forward slash contact reach out to your local city council people and demand that they not let this go through and also be a regular library user because they use those numbers as a way to say see we don't need this or that So if, you know, if you're not someone who uses them, make the time to show that this is something that's important and that it's a worthwhile investment and we don't want to see it disappear.
0: Absolutely. Great story, Jasmine. Um, So I guess it's time for us to take our first music break this week. The first song we're going to play is a throwback new (laughs) song. Um, I don't know about you, but I was a huge fan of the Jagged Little Pill, Alanis Morissette album. Oh yeah, for- formative album for me for sure. Okay, so you already know where I'm coming from with this. So yeah. I was looking into new music, um, and this track, I guess they redid it with all these other singers. So I'm super excited to present it to you. This is You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette featuring In Ingrid Andrus, Lainey Wilson, Madeline Edwards, and Morgan Wade. We'll be right back.
2: Uh... Want you to know That I'm happy for you And I wish nothing but The best for you both An older version of me Is she perverted like me? Would she go down on you in a theater? Does she speak eloquently? You make a really excellent mother Cause the love that you gave that we made wasn't able to break And I for you to be open wide No And every time you speak her name Does she know how you told me? Hold me until you die
0: Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. Um, So we're going to switch it up and go to our world news story. Um, This article was from The Guardian, and it was from uh, Sunday, April 16th. There has been some change in the conflict a little bit, not so much since then, but I thought this would be a good one because it gives us a little bit of breakdown of what's happening. Um, The author of the article is Adam Fulton, and the title is Sudan Conflict, Why is there Fighting and What is at Stake in the Region. Clashes between Sudan's military and the country's main parliamentary force have left at least 56 dead while control of the presidential palace and the international airport in Khartoum is in doubt after disputed claims from both sides in fighting that threatens to destabilize Sudan and the wider region. Can you hear that, car? Okay, they just stopped. Sorry. What's behind the fighting? The clashes erupted amid an apparent power struggle between the two main factions of Sudan's military regime. The Sudanese armed forces are broadly loyal to Jin Abel Fatah Al-Burham, the country's de facto ruler, while the parliamentaries of the Rapid Support Forces, known as the RSF, a collection of militia, followed the former warlord Jinn Mohammed Haman, Hamdan Degalo, known as Himeti. The power struggle has its roots in the years before a 2019 uprising that ousted the dictatorial ruler Omar al-Bashir, who built a formidable security forces that he deliberately set against one another. When an effort to transition to a democratic civilian-led government faltered after Bashir's fall, an eventual showdown appeared inevitable, which diplomats and cartoon warning in early 2022 that they feared such an outbreak of violence. In recent weeks, tensions have risen further. How did the military rivalries develop? The RSF was founded by Bashir to crush a rebellion in Darfur that began more than 20 years ago due to the political and economical marginalization of the local people of Sudan's central government. The RSF were also known by the name of Janjaweed, which became associated with widespread atrocities. In 2013, Bashir transformed the Janjaweed into a semi-organized paramilitary force that gave their leaders military ranks before deploying them to crush a rebellion in South Darfur and then dispatching many to fight in the war in Yemen and later Libya. The RSF, led by Hemeti and the regular military forces under Berman, cooperated to oust Bashir in 2019. The RSF then dispersed a peaceful sit-in that was held in front of the military headquarters in Khartoum, killing hundreds of people and raping dozens more. A power-sharing deal with the civilians who led the protests against Bashir which was supposed to bring about a transition towards a democratic government was interrupted by a coup in October 2021. The coup put the army back in charge but it faced weekly protests, renewed isolation and deepening economic woes. Hemeti swung behind the plan for a new transition, bringing tensions to Barhan to the surface. With Barhan to the surface, Hemeti was a huge wealth derived sorry. Hemeti has huge wealth derived from the export of gold from illegal mines and commands tens of thousands of battle-hardened veterans. He has long shaped at his position as official deputy of Sudan's ruling council. So what's at stake in the region? Sudan is in a volatile region bordering the Red Sea, the Sahel region, and the Horn of Africa. Its strategic location and agricultural wealth have a Attracted regional power plays complicating the chances of a successful transition to civilian-led government. Several of Sudan's neighbors, including Ethiopia, Chad, and South Sudan, have been affected by political upheavals and conflict, and Sudan's relationship with Ethiopia is particular, in particular, has been strained over issues including disputed farmland along their border major geopolitical dimensions are also at play with Russia, the US, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates and other powers battling for influence in Sudan. The Saudis and the UAE have been Sudan's transition have seen Sudan's transition as an opportunity to push back against Islamist influence in the region. They along with the US and Britain formed the Quad which has sponsored mediation in Sudan, along with the UN and the African Union. Western powers fear the potential for the Russian base on the Red Sea, which Sudanese military leaders have expressed openness to. So there's a little bit more to the article that you can look up and check out uh, that kind of gives a background. Um, What brought this to light for me was that as they are closing out the weekend of Ramadan, um, there was... They had hoped to have a ceasefire um, for their Eid celebration, and the battle was still going on as of yesterday. So many people are still caught up in the conflict. Also, Sudan is facing a, health, uh, a food crisis as well, um, which is obviously being fueled even more by this fighting and conflict. Um, there is, it's been very difficult for any aid to get to the people on the ground, let alone the numerous amounts of people who have been just dying from war Um, this is just one of those conflicts that's been going on so long and it's really sad that it's hard to even see an end when people can't even get in to help the people who are struggling
1: yeah like i i was reading along with you um this the guardian um article about the background on this conflict and it's you know, like anytime we do a world news story, it's always like, it's always a struggle to try to keep in in your mind, like who is who and what started when, because, you know, the world we're in is so complex. And there's so many, you know, struggles that lead into like the next thing. And then there's all these other countries, like even within the country, like you, it's not like you have Simply define black and white sides to anything. And then you have all these outside forces that are also influencing what's happening within that country amongst the different factions. And it's just, it's so horribly complicated and that, you know, can make it difficult to be optimistic about something ending, you know, when you have so many different competing interests and very powerful outside nations you know with a vested interest in one side winning over the other you know it's it's really complex and scary
0: yeah and it's particularly sad this is you know uh ramadan for many people who uh celebrate that in sudan yesterday was their eid which is kind of the closing um ceremony or or dinner or gathering for uh this holiday and In another article on the BBC, it was just speaking about how, you know, there was this is normally like a big festival time. It's the end of the fasting. And normally people are gathering together with their family. But prayer services um, on Friday at the mosque in these areas were empty because people were sheltered at home. So it's, you know, even within those times, they tried to get a ceasefire for the weekend and it's just gotten so bad. Um, another point from this article on BBC is just talking about how the pay, the hospitals are overwhelmed and unable to treat the amount of people who have been um, affected by this, this fighting. So, you know, just prayers up for the people in this region and the surrounding regions, the many children who are growing up in this war, you know, it's been going on for so long. I mean, the story that I was speaking about from the first story dated back to 2019, but this fighting and these these uh, regional issues have been going on way before that and it's just very sad um, to know that there's not much we can do out for as outsiders, even you know with aid and different different organizations that are set up to help people in this position, it's very difficult for them to even get on ground to give them the resources. So just wanted to, Send up some prayers uh for Sudan, and the people who are dealing with this conflict is very sad
1: yeah, it definitely is um and last week we talked about some tentative good news and the conflict in Yemen um seeming to be cooling down or like that there's some potential that you know the fighting can stop so it's not like it's impossible for these things to end. It's just it can be very difficult to like see that, you know, when you have so much so many overlapping interests and things have been happening like this for so long, but I'm definitely hoping that sooner rather than later it comes to an end cuz it's the amount of suffering is just like unimaginable and it does not have to be like this.
0: Yeah. Definitely. I just hope that some peace can be found. Um, and then if, you know, that if democracy is right for those people, that they are able to achieve what they're looking for. And if it's another form of, you know, government that includes the people who will be governed, because it seems like it, it all stems from that, that they also can be included in those decisions. You know, it's, it's really hard to tell people how to rule their nation, you know, maybe democracy doesn't work for everyone. I'm not seeing this or that or here or there. What I'm saying is it's important for people to have a stake in what is happening and how their country is ruled. It's important for them to be heard. Um, And it seems, you know, historically that some form of democracy is the way to do that. But I just hope that these two fighting groups can find some form of way to work together Um, And stop hurting so many people
1: in the process Yeah I mean what's that saying we have It's like if all You have is a hammer every problem Is a nail like Mm
2: -hmm. Whenever
1: you have these situations Where it's like the military Is in charge of the country Then you know That's all you're going to see is fighting Fighting and like violent Repression of any Type of dissent so I don't know, like, and it's not for us to say, like, what type of government is right for another right. group of people, like you're saying, but, you know, military dictatorships or, like, the army being on top of shit, like, whether it's in African nations, Latin American nations, like, wherever, like, it's, that one is almost never it, because right. all you're going to see is just constant, you know, fighting and bloodshed and not respecting the will of the people so
0: definitely well we're gonna go ahead and take a music break I think we need to come up for air Um, I chose this next song because the artist is Sudanese this song is called Morning Blue and it's by Gaida we'll be right back
2: away from our world state of mind it's all in our scope it's all that we
1: If you'd like to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of your computer, please download our free mobile app for iPhone and Android available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Also, please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming Radio Free Brooklyn events. You can sign up at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org forward slash newsletter.
0: Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. And next up, we'll have Jasmine back with our national news story.
1: Okay, so this article is um, it's national news, but it's actually from the BBC, from their um, un- one of their U.S. offices. This article was written by Kayla Epstein, and the title is Ralph Yarl, Kaylin Gillis, and Other Senseless Shootings Rattle U.S. Uh, I'm going to read most of it and also add some uh, other details from other articles, uh, but there's some things that I cut for the sake of time. Ringing the wrong doorbell, driving up the wrong road, approaching the wrong car, losing a ball in a neighbor's yard. These are the common mistakes for which everyday Americans have been shot over the past seven days, one of them as young as six. Rather than mass shootings, it is these smaller incidents that account for a majority of firearms deaths and injuries in the United States. And this week illustrated how these isolated acts accumulate into a larger portrait of gun violence in America. The main type of incidents that we have are one or two people get shot, said Mark Bryant, director of the Gun Violence Archive. They have calculated 165 mass shootings so far this year, but thousands of smaller incidents. Suicides account for more than half of all gun deaths in the U.S., according to the CDC. But an average of 50 people die each day in the United States from non-suicide gun incidents and roughly 100 are injured, according to Mr. Bryan and the Gun Violence Archive. Mass shootings are a small amount of the overall gun violence incidents in the country, he said those large casualty events get extra attention, but make up only about 6% of total injuries and deaths. Instead, many are stories like that of Ralph Jarl, a 16-year-old Black teenage boy from Missouri who was shot and wounded by a white homeowner after he mistakenly rang the man's doorbell on April 13th. Uh, and this is just a detail from NBC News. The teen was shot in the head, which cracked his skull and left him with a critical traumatic brain injury. While the teenager was still on the ground, the homeowner opened fire a second time, striking Jarl in the upper right arm. Jarl went to three houses before someone finally helped him. And then back to the BBC article. Or Kaylin Gillis, a 20-year-old woman shot and killed on April 15th when she and her friends mistakenly drove up the wrong driveway in New York State and a homeowner opened fire. Or two high school cheerleaders who approached the wrong car in a Texas parking lot on April 18th only for a man to get out and start firing and seriously wound one of them. Uh, And these are some details about that from NPR. Cheerleader Heather Roth said on Instagram Live that she and three of her teammates got to the lot just after midnight, according to ABC News. Roth opened the door to a car that she thought was hers, but saw a man sitting in the passenger seat and quickly retreated to her friend's car instead. She said the man approached their vehicle and she had just rolled down her window to apologize when he started shooting. Woodland's elite Chair owner, Lynn Shearer, told NBC affiliate KXAN that once the girls saw he had a gun, they tried to speed off and he shot five times or so into the car. And then back to the BBC. Or a six-year-old girl and her father in North Carolina who were shot on April 18th after police say their basketball rolled into the alleged shooter's yard. The bullet came back and the bullet went in my cheek, the small girl told a local news station. Um, And this is also from the BBC on a different article. The suspect in that shooting was previously known to police for allegedly assaulting his girlfriend with a sledgehammer in December. And these are just the stories that made national headlines. The shootings take place against a backdrop of increasingly polarized debates over access to and use of guns in the United States. Supporters of gun rights argue for fewer restrictions for purchasing, using, and carrying firearms, while proponents for gun safety continue to push for rules that limit access. The Second Amendment of the U.S. Constitution guarantees Americans the right to firearms, though to what degree is a matter of heated political and legal debate. Conservatives who often support Second Amendment rights place the blame for gun violence on a broader mental health crisis or increased crime. Liberals who tend to favor stricter gun regulation point to levels of access to firearms in the U.S. as the cause of the violence. As of April twentieth, 2023, 12,719 people have died so far this year in gun violence incidents, according to data provided by the Gun Violence Archive. Their methodology includes a broad range of incidents, including accidents, officer-involved shootings, armed robberies, mass shootings, familicide, murder, and defensive gun use. Since April 13th, the day Ralph Yarl visited the wrong house, there have been 845 gun-related incidents in the United States, according to preliminary data from the Gun Violence Archive. A small fraction of these incidents did not involve any shots fired, such as one April 13th incident where an adult left a loaded gun in the bathroom of an Atlanta, Georgia primary school But many of them did. Overall, those 845 incidents led to 743 injuries and 328 deaths. Next week, there will be more. So, yeah, I almost was going to pick out just one of the shootings. Like, I I had personally been reading a lot about the shooting of Ralph Yarl and following his recovery. Like, he's you know, still living and seems to be progressing, like, thank God, but I I thought it was important to point out that there's so many of these things happening every day, um, that don't always get that much media attention. And it's, um, it's extremely disturbing and seems to be accelerating.
0: I mean... First of all, thank you for that story I've been following. I knew about the ones that you were speaking about, about the cheerleaders and the other teenagers. It's so sad to just think that people are actually against regulating when this is the stories that we listen to every week. Like, what kind of psychopath, and I, and I mean that fullheartedly. I understand the need for protection, especially in the type of society that we live in. But there has to be some way around these numbers. These numbers are alarming. If they're not alarming you, they should. Because the reality is it could be any one of us at any any time when just simple regulation could change this, at least cut it in half, we would hope, right? I mean, people are still going to get guns. There's a the black market. They're going to do what they have to do. But who would oppose regulation besides a person that just cannot see how how this is affecting everyone like it's it's mind boggling to me every time i see somebody opposing people who are trying to get some leverage with this issue it just it breaks my heart and i'm disgusted by it
1: well yeah it's like i don't really I think, like, my initial reaction is that, yes, we should have stricter gun laws, and also we shouldn't be manufacturing them, Um, and even, unfortunately, with, like, the way people are with being able to make ghost guns and stuff and 3D printing weapons, where there's a will, there is a way, but part of it is also that a lot of these gun incidents are happening where it is someone who had the gun legally. And it's not like they had, you know, some, they didn't necessarily have a history of a type of problem where the gun would be taken away. Like for, in the case of the six-year-old girl that was shot because of a damn basketball, that guy did have a, ba- a background where he had allegedly assaulted someone violently before, but there's a lot of these incidents that happen where the person followed all of the rules. Like they didn't get it through some kind of a loophole or anything. And it, it, I guess what I'm trying to say is as much as I do agree with the idea that we should have these things be more regulated and we should limit access to guns, just period. The other part of me is also saying like, there's also a deeper problem with what is happening in these people's minds where they think to grab a gun and shoot in these situations. And I'd like to point out that in this, in these stories that were mentioned in this article, they were all men who were shooters of different ages and also of different races. Like the man who shot the teenage girls in um, Texas was like a um, middle-aged, non-white Hispanic man. The guy who shot the six-year-old and the other neighbors because of the basketball was um, a 20-something-year-old black man. And then the man who shot Ralph Yarl was an elderly white man. And I believe there was one other shooting mentioned where that shooter was also, it was a white man as well in New York who shot the girl for driving up the wrong driveway. So it's like throughout, (laughs) it's like you can't even just narrow it down to being like, oh, it's just this one specific demographic. It's like, what is happening in the minds of these primarily men where any petty grievance, any little thing, you are, I want to pick up a weapon. I want to blow somebody away.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's definitely in the messaging as well, right? Like what makes them feel like that's the best outlet. I just feel like even with regulation, it's not just regulating laws. It's also just having more discussion around this, more attention to this issue, and just making it a forefront thing that we acknowledge as a huge issue for humanity in this country and beyond.
1: Yeah and like definitely issues with like the way manhood and manliness or whatever is treated in this country like the threat of patriarchal violence or the idea that men should have the right to lash out violently when something doesn't go their way or something upsets them like it's deadly you know like it's killing us across the board you know like uh, definitely with domestic violence like that's a huge thing where you know you see people dying needlessly because of that but then you also have like road rage incidents you you know have these examples of just wrong place wrong time you know like there's absolutely like a crisis in the way in this culture like we treat it as like something to take for granted that it's okay for men to be violent or react violently. Or I'm even thinking of, um, I don't know if you've been following like with Megan the Stallion, her being shot, uh, by the Canadian rapper. I'm not even going to say his name and the way people were like defending him, you know, it's just, there's something deeper, like where even if, I do feel like the number one issue is the access to guns, because even if you still had that deep cultural, you know, patriarchal sickness, the fact that you have access to a firearm means instead of maybe hitting someone, you are, have now shot multiple people like in the face, you know, which is different but even if you solve that it's like you still have like what is going on inside of the person's mind and what culture has produced them that this is acceptable you know and I I think that as hard as it is to regulate guns I definitely think the cultural shift is a much bigger problem you know to get away from the idea that that's normal and I think a lot of right-wing ghouls in this country they want to cultivate an environment where violence is what people go to cuz then it gives them more of an excuse to be like see like this is why we have to crack down like it's like they want it to be chaotic and everybody is scared cuz people who are scared are easier to control and you know that's just that's my thoughts my my jumbled thoughts on the matter
0: it's definitely a vicious cycle that feeds into each other, um, and and other thing, other issues that we have in society. So, oh, um, all right. I guess I can try to give y'all some good news. Is that all right? Can we have some good news today? Because it's been a little happy this morning. Yes, please. <laughs> all right, so. Um, This is a cool little story, Um, and to be honest, since I moved to California, I've been more conscientious about things like this because I spend more time by the water. Um, This is from a website called greekreporter.com. The article is from April 7th, and the title is, oh, the author is uh, Tasos Kokendis, sorry if I mispronounced your name. Um, The title is... Greece makes hundreds of beaches wheelchair-friendly. So Greece is making hundreds of beaches wheelchair-friendly by installing the greek design seat track system for wheelchairs. The system is a free service that offers unassisted sea access to people with disabilities and mobility issues. It is an innovative technological assistant that promotes auto- autonomy, quality, and wellness in everyday life. Speaking at a press conference on the project on Thursday, officials said that a total of 287 beaches across Greece will be fully accessible to people with mobility problems by introducing other essential facilities like parking, bathroom and changing facilities, ramps and corridors to sun loungers and refreshment bars. Officials said that 147 beaches have already undergone the necessary transformation to make them more accessible. Equal access to the sea is an inalienable human right, said Tourism Minister Vasilis Kikalias, adding that the 15 million euro project is being funded by the European, European Union and National Resources. Fully accessible beaches also help the economy. People with disabilities and people with limited mobility are given the opportunity to participate in beach activities with family and friends, enhancing the quality of life for everyone, said the Ministry of Tourism people with disabilities and people with limited mobility can engage in activities such as swimming that contribute to their physical and mental health. Fully accessible beaches contribute to the development of the local economy by attracting visitors with disabilities as well as visitors with limited mobility such as elderly people, pregnant women, people with temporary and people with temporary injuries it adds. The Tourism Ministry has also designed a website with relevant information and made a series of short videos on the beaches that are available on YouTube. So that is our good news story. I think this is great. Um, you know, just the thought of a certain group of people being limited to something that life has to offer. So, so beautiful as a beach and the ocean, um, you know, it could really change the quality of your life, especially if you live in a place that's surrounded by the sea and it's also just nice to consider the families that will be able to offer these opportunities to their loved ones. I mean, go go Greece. I don't understand why we can't do that everywhere in the world. Hopefully they are starting this and will share uh, this technology and the resources that they use to put it together with everyone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And it's like, you know, a lot of things having to do with disability and stuff it gets treated and thought of as like a special need or extra accommodation and when you think about it it's really the opposite because you know whether we're born with a disability or we just live to be at an older age like we're all likely going to experience what it's like to not be as mobile as we used to be or there's some type of change in the way our bodies or our minds work. So it's actually not a minority fringe issue. It's something that affects everybody when think places are not accessible. So yeah, it absolutely should be just the norm that, you know, you have facilities that are reflective of the fact that all of us either now or in the future are going to, you know, need, you know, these types of accommodations and, It's a lot better to just start out with that as the baseline and make it easy for everyone than to start out by excluding so many people and then trying to fix it after the fact. You know, like you even see it with a lot of like houses and things like this. It's like, why not start out when you build it? with the understanding that disabled people or people who aren't mobile are going to need it instead of assuming they're not there and then when the person gets older they can't even live comfortably in their own house you know what i'm saying so absolutely definitely good for Greece, but you know other places get on it
0: that's right i mean with all of the technology that we have in the world today they late but at least they here
1: I know it's something like I just saw an article. It's like, oh, ninety-five percent of MTA subway stations will be accessible by twenty fifty-five. I had to rub my eyes and look. What I said in thirty in thirty years. Yeah, That's and that party. wouldn't even that wouldn't even be a hundred percent. I'm like, are we still going to be above water in thirty years? Damn, yeah.
0: <laughs> will we be here to even see that happen?
1: i mean yeah let's i mean fingers crossed let's hope so let's hope things you know take a turn for the better some way somehow and we are still around and thriving but
0: who knows very true awesome well we did it we have concluded this week's episode thank you so much for listening Um, definitely check in with us on our social media pages and also the Radio Free Brooklyn website for older episodes our last trek of the day is in celebration of the one and only Prince Uh, this is his memorial weekend he passed away I believe it was 2015 um, I think on April 21st so it would have been actually yesterday but uh, to all the purple people in the world who love Prince, like I do. Uh This track is in memory of him. And also, just go have a good weekend, y'all. Try to do something fun. So the final track of today is Let's Go Crazy by Prince. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you all next week. Bye.
1: Bye, everybody. Take care.
2: We have gathered here today to get through this thing called life. Electric word, life. It means forever. And that's a mighty long time. But I'm here to tell you. There's something, There's something else, the afterworld, after a world of never-ending happiness. You can, you can always see the sun, the sun. Day, day or night. night. So when you call, when you call up that shrink in Beverly, Beverly Hills, 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 you know the you one. Dr. down, be alright. Right. that.
1: Radio Free Brooklyn is proud to present Movie Club at Come On Everybody, 325 Franklin Avenue in Brooklyn on Sunday, May 7th. Internationally acclaimed psych-rock duo Movie Club will be presenting Uncovering the 90s, The Good, The Bad, and Like Whatever, a combination of live reading, discussion, and musical performance. The band will be joined by Pulitzer Prize winning author Camille Perry, in addition to some other very special local guests. You don't want to miss this multimedia, multidimensional live performance extravaganza right in the heart of Brooklyn. For more information, visit movieclubtheband.com.